Okay, well, good morning and welcome to week three of our equipping class on systematic theology part two. So if you look on the back of your handout, you can see where we are in the schedule up to this point. Um, so last week, we talked about who the Holy Spirit is, and we saw two things clearly from Scripture regarding who the Holy Spirit is. You remember what, what those two characteristics of the Spirit we looked at last week were, for those of you that were here last week? This is easy. Come on, Frank. Holiness, yes, but that's, that's, that's one of the divine attributes that we see in the Holy Spirit, but the, I'm looking even more big picture than that. Susan, thank you. The Holy Spirit is a person, right? The, the Holy Spirit is a person in distinction from just being some power or force or abstract energy, right? The Spirit is a person in the same sense that the Father and Son are persons. So we refer to the Spirit as He, not it, right? So He's an intelligent, voluntary, living being with understanding and will. And we saw that in various places in the Bible. And we talked about the significance of that is that that means we can have a relationship with Him, right? So the Holy Spirit, as a person, has personality and has personal relationships, and we can have a relationship with the Spirit because He is a person. What's the second thing we saw? This Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is... He's God. Holy Spirit is God. So we saw that he is fully God, equal to and distinct from the Father and the Son. So we saw how the deity of the Holy Spirit is clearly taught in Scripture. It, uh, the, uh, scripture ascribes all the same divine attributes to the Holy Spirit as God the Father and the Son, one of which is holiness, as Frank mentioned. Um. And then just specifically refers to the Holy Spirit as God in, in several different places. Okay, so now we understand who the Holy Spirit is. And so today, and for the following two weeks, we're going to look closely at what the Word teaches about what the Spirit does. Okay, what the Spirit does. So let me open us in prayer, and we'll jump into it. Uh, Father, we are so grateful uh, to be able to come together this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to be able to open up your word together and see all that you have to say to us about who you are and specifically uh, who the Holy Spirit is and what he does uh, in and through us. And uh, we're so thankful uh, for the Holy Spirit, and we are uh, just mindful of our need for the work of the Spirit, even in this time together, uh, to open up our minds, to understand who He is and how He works, and so that we may love Him and worship Him um, and experience the, just the fullness of His power in our lives 
Um, and we want to understand that, to love him and worship him the way uh, you have revealed him in your word. And so we pray uh, for his help in doing that this morning. Pray that you would just clear our minds uh, from uh, the distractions of outside things, from just settle our hearts from the busyness of the morning and getting here, and uh, just help us to focus on what you have for us this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so on your handout there, you'll see a, uh, a summary of the work of the Spirit by a theologian named uh, Anthony Hokema. And he summarizes the work of the Spirit well when he says this, The Holy Spirit brings to completion the plan of the Father through the application of the Word and the benefits of the Son by acting upon and in the creature. Okay? So that's not necessarily the catchiest summary, but I think it is helpful for for two different reasons. First, it highlights the work of the Spirit in a Trinitarian way. Okay, so too often, I think, the work of the Spirit is divorced from the work of the Father and the Son. And, and the Spirit is kind of seen as this mysterious but exciting member of the Trinity that does all this unpredictable stuff. But biblically, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not doing different things. But instead, they are working out the one plan of God, all in harmony and in unison together. So we see this clearly in texts like John fifteen twenty six which we've referenced a lot, and we're going to reference more. But Jesus, uh, in the upper room, says to the disciples, uh, when the counselor comes, meaning the Spirit, whom I, Jesus, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So broadly speaking, then we could say that the Father authors, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Okay? The Father authors, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. So there are three persons existing in one God, and their activities represent one unified work. Okay? So the second reason that I think Hokuma's definition is helpful is that it highlights the work of the Spirit as Christological. So in other words, the Spirit's work in the New Covenant is centered on Jesus. The chief role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation is to make us one with Christ. So he unites us to Christ, and all the blessings that come with that union regeneration, indwelling, adoption, etc. And that's why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Paul calls him that in Romans 8. Peter calls him that in 1 Peter 1. Um, Paul in Galatians 4 calls him the Spirit of God's Son. So to participate in the Spirit is to participate in Christ. So any understanding of the Spirit that isn't Trinitarian and isn't 
Christological in this way actually dishonors him. Okay? And so that's why we want to think really carefully about the Spirit's work and make sure that our understanding of him is aligned with how he's revealed himself to us in Scripture. Okay? Any comments, questions on any of that up to this point? No? Okay. Okay, so today, uh, the way we're going to begin looking at the work of the Holy Spirit is to kind of do a biblical survey of how we see the work of the Spirit described throughout the biblical narrative, okay? So we're going to start by looking at the Spirit's work in the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at how in the Gospels we see the Spirit working in Jesus' ministry, um, and then we'll look at how the ministry of the Spirit is going to change following Jesus' departure, okay? And I want to say a couple of things before we jump into this, okay? One is, there's different ways to view this distinction between the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the Gospels, and then from Acts 2 onwards. So, there's different ways to view those things. Um, and so good and godly people disagree on exactly how and in what ways the Spirit's work changed following Pentecost. Um, and so with that, I'm going to be coming at this from a particular perspective. But my hope is that as we follow the biblical trail on this thing, that you can come to your own conclusion as to what Scripture is actually teaching us. Make sense? Okay. Second, I want to clarify, as we talk about the Spirit's work in the Old Testament, I want to clarify that all believers, Old Testament saints, and New Testament Christians are saved in the same way. Okay, they're saved by grace, through faith, on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross. Okay, so that's the same for everybody, Old and New Testament. Old Testament saints believed in the promises of God according to what had been revealed to them at the time, and they are justified on the basis of Christ's sacrificial work, which was applied to them retroactively, if you will. Okay, and so if you have questions about that or you want to discuss that further, you can talk to me offline and we can... We can discuss that further, but those are just two kind of caveats I wanted to give before we get into this kind of uh, biblical survey, because there are, I mean, there, there is debate about how some of this goes, and, and certainly I'm not proposing that my view is the final authority on it, um, but to me, this is the most clear and straightforward way to see it, um, but certainly other views exist. And so, and, and some of you may hold some of those other views, which is, which is fine. But hopefully this will be edifying um, and informative nonetheless. Okay. So the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament. So when we look at the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit shows up all throughout doing various things. Okay, so we see 
in Isaiah 63, we actually see that that divine presence that guided God's people, people in the exodus out of Egypt, which was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, that was actually the Holy Spirit. Isaiah tells us that. So it was the Spirit of God that gifted certain men in the construction of the tabernacle. We see that, or in inspiring the Old Testament prophets with the Word of God. So we mentioned this last week, but where do we see the Holy Spirit first show up in the Old Testament? Where do we see Him first? Genesis 1. At the beginning, right? Cliff mentioned this. I think others mentioned this last week. So Genesis 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, let's note two things that the text says are present here. Number one, the Spirit of God. Number two, the word of God. Okay, so God speaks, let there be light, and it comes into being by the power of his spirit. So God creates by his word through his spirit. You see that in the very beginning of the Bible. So the spirit brings about the Father's will in creation, bringing order out of chaos, creating what is out of that which was not. So in other words, the work of the Spirit in creation is to extend God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what has been planned in the mind of God. So that's pretty incredible to think about. If you go back to what we talked about, about how big picture, when we think about the persons of the Trinity, God authors, um, Christ the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. So we see here the Spirit applying um, as God's agent to bring about what God the Father has thought of. Okay? So that's the first place we see the Spirit in the Old Testament. We also see the Spirit working in revelation to prophets. Revelation to prophets. So we see in the Old Testament the Spirit's work of of actually both revelation and inspiration. So what do we mean by revelation? Spirit's work of revelation. What do we mean by that? Revealing, right. Yeah. And it, more specifically, it means like uh, divine revelation is, is a disclosure that was previously unknowable to humans, right? So it's something that, that these prophets couldn't have known any other way, but that it came to them by divine disclosure or revelation. So there are scripture references there. You can see one, Zechariah 7, 12. Um, He says, They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent 
by his spirit through the former prophets. So it was the, the spirit was the agent by which God the Father was communicating to the prophets to speak the words that he wanted Israel to hear. Nehemiah 9.30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. So, but we also see in Scripture that the Old Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? How is inspiration different from revelation? When we use the word inspiration with regard to Scripture, what are we talking about? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1. So first of all, inspiration applies to the written word of God, whereby the Holy Spirit protects God's revelation through human writers from error in order to provide a completely true and trustworthy writing. Okay, and that process took place through the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you see the Spirit specifically working in this very specific work of taking God's revelation, moving people along to write these things down in a way that was inerrant and authoritative and infallible. So, and then this leads us to one of the primary ways that we see the Spirit working in the Old Testament, and that is empowering for special service. Empowering for special service. And Sean Cooper is not here this week, but this gets to his question from last week. If you were here last week, Sean asked a question about the indwelling of the Spirit for Old Testament saints. The indwelling of the Spirit for Old Testament saints. And again, there are different views on this. But what do you think? Do you think that Old Testament believers possessed God's Spirit? Do you think that the Spirit was dwelling inside of Old Testament believers? Frank says no. Why, Frank? Yes.
Yeah. Yes. Cliff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And so just, just for the recording, Frank and Cliff both shared a lot of great thoughts. Just trying to summarize it, Frank was noting how Samson is an example in the Old Testament where we see kind of a temporary empowering of the spirit for him to accomplish a specific task but then we see later on that the spirit is gone and so and, and he's also he and cliff are both noting how there's a promise of a new work of the spirit in the prophets that we are going to start to see and something distinctly different about what happened at pentecost and following and so based on those things they would say no i don't think there was indwelling in the in the old testament and yes i would agree uh, for those very same reasons if you look on your handout, um, I've got a note there that just says indwelling or filling in the Old Testament seems to be characterized by infrequent temporary empowerment for selected leaders. So, so very, very selective, very temporary. Um, so the, the Old Testament never speaks of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers in a permanent and ongoing way. Um, in the Old Testament, um, God's dwelling is always external in the tabernacle and in the temple, but never in believers. Um, so we see the Spirit empowering believers, but not equally and not indefinitely. So even if you remember a while back when Brad preached through 1 Samuel and he, he talked about the work in Saul's life, how the Spirit came upon him and empowered him, but then at a certain point, the Spirit actually departed, and it left him. Um, and then you see kind of the fallout from that. So um, so we won't go through all of them, but the Scripture references are there on the handout. But we just see that in the Old Testament, the Spirit's work was predominantly reserved for leaders, prophet, priests, and kings but also that the prophets actually longed for better days and longed for something more from the Spirit. Very interesting in, in Numbers eleven twenty nine that Moses said, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit on all of them. So Moses longed for a day when all God's people would possess God's Spirit. Um, and, and so that's the hope that Moses had that would that would all people would possess God's spirit. And that brings us to our next point on your handout there, which is D, which is a promise of future work. We see a promise of future work. Cliff alluded to it in Ezekiel 36. So when we come to the prophets, we see that there's going to be a major transition in God's plan of redemption that will include a major transition in the work of the Spirit in God's people, okay? And we're going to look at these passages more closely in just a minute, so we'll just put a pin in these for now. Um, but we're, we're going to get to this, this promise of the outpouring of the Spirit and then how we see that start to be, be fulfilled in the New Testament. And we see the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises in the person of Jesus Christ, 
which brings us to the next section. Our main point three is the Spirit's work in the ministry of Jesus. Okay, so when we get to the Gospels, our understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit comes into greater focus and clarity. So to begin, let's look at the work of the Spirit in the person of Christ, and we can trace um, his work in Christ through five different stages. And first is that it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Right? We see in several passages in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit will be an integral part of the Messiah's ministry. Okay, so Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So when we come to the Gospels, we see that the Spirit is actually the agent also of Christ's conception as well. So if you get turn to the inside of your handout, that's point B, conception. Luke 1.35. We see here the angel speaking to Mary, saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the Spirit's work in the ministry of Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament. We see it even in his very conception. There's Sean. Sean, we were just talking about you. We were disappointed that you weren't here. Yeah. <laughs> I was just making reference to your question from last week and how we're kind of talking through some of that. So, yeah. Uh, well, listen, it happens. Um, yeah, so we see him in, in Christ's conception. And then the next stage of the Spirit's work in Christ uh, starts with his baptism. We see this baptismal anointing. We see that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water... And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism. And then when we get to Matthew 4, we read that Jesus, full of the Spirit, is led through this rerun of the Garden of Eden which is where Satan is going to tempt Jesus like he did Adam. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam, which is Jesus, is going to actually succeed. He's going to pass this test. And it's, and it's because Luke 4.1, he's full of the Spirit following his baptism. So full of the Spirit, he walks into enemy territory, into the wilderness, to face off with Satan and to be tempted for 40 days and nights. So he fights for his people and he wins because of the power of the Spirit. And after defeating Satan, he demands, be gone, Satan, and the, and the devil flees from him. And his power to withstand this temptation came from the Holy Spirit. 
So, and this is just a reminder to us that, you know, we, we fight from a position of victory in our battle against sin and against Satan as well, right? We have that same spirit that was empowering Jesus to fight this fight. We have that same spirit as well. And then our next point, D, is just an extension of this point, which is that we see all throughout the gospel that whatever Jesus does, the Spirit is right there with him. Right there, anointing him to preach, empowering him, filling him, leading him, rejoicing with him. There's scripture references are all there, but for the sake of time, we won't go through all of those. But we just, it's all throughout the gospel. Whatever Jesus is doing, whatever he's saying, whatever he's dealing with, it's the, it's the spirit that is there witnessing this, helping him, empowering him, comforting him. And lastly, we see the spirit's work in Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, so Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we also see that even though it is usually attributed to the Father and the Son, the resurrection is also a work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power, to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So just to summarize, the Bible teaches us that so much of what Jesus did was because of the Spirit's work in Him. His conception, his anointing, his death and resurrection, all done in the power of the Spirit in Jesus. Questions or comments on that? Okay. Okay, so with that, we're going to move to our next section on the work of the Spirit, which is going to occupy the rest of our time today as well as the next two weeks. Okay, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church under the new covenant. And we're going to look at all the ways that the Bible teaches that the Spirit is now at work in the church and in individual Christians. Um, But the first and most foundational of those works is regeneration. And we're going to talk more about that um, as we go. But, and and again, people view this differently. Okay, There, there are varying views by good and godly people on even this that we're going to talk about. Just in the same way that there's different views on the Spirit's work in the Old Testament. But I believe that the key to understanding the transition of the Spirit's work from the Old Testament and the Gospels to Acts chapter 2 and beyond is the baptism of the Spirit. 
Okay, so my goal here is for us to follow the trail through Scripture together in order to see the progression of how this transition takes place. Okay, so we're going to look at a biblical survey of the baptism of the Spirit. So in order to understand what it means to be baptized by the Spirit, we need to trace the usage of this phrase in its biblical context and recognize a few important connections that are made between this phrase and other teaching on the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there's, there's, six, there's six links in the chain here that hopefully you can, you can follow along with me. So this phrase, baptized in the Holy Spirit, actually occurs six times in the New Testament and does not occur in the Old Testament. Okay? So the six New Testament occurrences break down in the following way. There's four appearances in the Gospels, so one appearance in each of the four Gospels, and then two uh, occurrences of that phrase in the book of Acts. Okay? So the four Gospel occurrences are four accounts of the same statement made by John the Baptist. And then the phrase is used in Acts once by Jesus and once by Peter. So the phrase baptized in the Holy Spirit is really only used three times, once by three different people, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter. Okay, you tracking with me so far? Okay, but there's three additional links to this idea of spirit baptism that I think provide the key to understanding what was meant by each of these three biblical characters when they spoke of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And those three links are the promise of God the Father through the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus' teaching concerning the Father's promise, and then Peter's association of what took place at Pentecost with what the Father had promised and what Jesus had taught concerning the outpouring of the Spirit. Okay, everybody with me? So there's six, six links in the chain. The three uses of the phrase baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then these three other links. Make sense? Okay, let's look at them together. The first one is the promise of the Father in the prophets. Okay? So to understand what John the Baptist was referring to when he made that stunning announcement that the Messiah would baptize in the Holy Spirit, we've got to understand what had been predicted by the Old Testament prophets. Okay? So the prophet Joel, chronologically, was the first. Um, it was the earliest of these predictions where he said, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Joel 2.28 and uh, 29. So from this passage and others, it's clear that there will come a time in the future where God will pour out the Holy Spirit on his people in a way that is somehow different from the way in which he had up to that point in redemptive history. Okay, and that's consistent with the testimony of the other writing prophets concerning the future ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as Cliff pointed out earlier, as part of the new covenant that was 
promised through Jeremiah. Jeremiah calls it the new covenant. But Ezekiel uses the same language, same new covenant language, and, and through Ezekiel, God promised that he is going to give a new heart and put a new spirit in his people at this future time. And that this implantation of his spirit in each person would move them to actually follow his laws. Okay? So instead of God's law being written on tablets of stone, now it's going to be written on their very hearts. And it's because they're going to have new hearts that can, that can receive that law. Because instead of having hearts of stone, they're going to have hearts of flesh. And this is all part, this is all a future thing that's going to happen. And it's tied to the work of the Spirit in giving a new heart and putting His Spirit within them. Okay, and that promise is also repeated in Ezekiel 37, 14, Ezekiel 39, 29. Where Ezekiel predicted that God would no longer hide His face from him, but He would pour out His Spirit. Pour it out. So in each of these different passages, the image of the Spirit is that of water, having the idea of an abundance that was likened to this veritable downpour, right? That's the imagery that's being used when he talks about pouring out. So it's, it's, got, this, it's got this idea of water, okay? And so then we, when we come to John the Baptist in the Gospels, then we've got John the Baptist. This, he's the one who coins the phrase, baptized in the Holy Spirit. This came from, the, the, from John the Baptist. And it comes from his announcement of the one coming after him. Okay, He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And all four Gospels include this. And this word that he uses that's translated baptize basically means to dip. Okay, and the idea is that who or whatever is dipped in something becomes united with what they are dipped in. Okay, that's what baptizing means. So there's this idea of being enveloped by something and united to that thing that you are enveloped by. And John, who was known as the baptizer, that was his nickname, the baptizer, because that's what he was doing. He was baptizing people. Um, So he took this occasion to use a play on words as an illustration to show the greatness of the Messiah in comparison to his own. Okay, so get what John is doing here. This is a play on words. He's the baptizer. He's baptizing people in water. He's trying to communicate to people that, okay, this I, I'm doing this. Like, you think this is great. Um, you think my baptizing is something to marvel at. But the one who's coming after me will baptize you with something much greater than water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he was the forerunner to the Messiah, and he was baptizing people in water as a sign of repentance. So as a contrast to the agent of his baptizing, which was water, 
he pronounces that Christ, who is much greater, will perform a much greater baptism by means of a much greater agent, which is the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Any questions on that up to this point? Okay. Third link in the chain. Jesus teaches about the Father's promise. Okay, so this is link three, where Jesus is actually going to teach about link one. The Father's promise in the prophets. So toward the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus made a number of announcements to the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit that echoed the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit spoken of by Joel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. So in John 7, 38, Jesus spoke of rivers of living water flowing from those who believe in him. And the Apostle John, in recording this, interpreted that statement as referring to a future giving of the Holy Spirit to those who would believe in Jesus. So John indicates that this future giving of the Spirit would not occur until Jesus was glorified. So John 7, 39, John says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those he, he believed, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then, of course, Jesus makes a number of other statements with regard to the coming of the Spirit in John chapter 14 through 16 in the upper room that we went through pretty extensively last week. So, so far we have the promise of the Father in the prophets of a future outpouring of the Spirit. We have John the Baptist using an illustration to talk about what the Messiah will do in distinction to what he's doing. We have Jesus referring back to the promise of the Father and telling the disciples this is going to happen in the future. It's going to happen not many days from now. So then we get to Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So now Jesus is actually connecting John's illustration at the beginning of the Gospels with the Father's promise in the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying these are the same thing. Because up to this point, there was no concrete connection between the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit, spoken of by the prophets, and then further taught by Jesus. There was no concrete connection between that and John the Baptist's illustration about the work of the Messiah. But here, in these two verses, Jesus reminds the disciples, first, of the Father's promise to send the Spirit, and then he reminds them of John's illustration showing that he would perform a much greater baptism by means of a much greater agent. And he further tells them that this event would happen not many days from now. So he tells them that they have heard this promise from him 
And then he specifically identifies the promise as that of which John spoke, which is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this ties the reference of the Father's promise to the announcement by John. And it seems clear from this that the promise of the Father and the baptism of the Holy Spirit referred to by John refer to the same event or manifestation of the Spirit. Okay, any questions? Okay. Link number five. Peter believes that Pentecost began to fulfill the promise of the Father. We see this in Acts 2, 16 and 33. So according to Peter, the fuller expression of the Spirit promised by God in the Old Testament through the prophets and promised to the disciples by Jesus had taken place or at least was initiated in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and the salvation of the multitudes at Pentecost. Because he said in Acts 2.33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So to him it was clear that this was the fulfillment of what Jesus had described to them in Acts 1, 4, and 5 when he associated the Father's promise to send the Spirit with John's illustration of the baptism in the Spirit that would happen not many days from now. Okay, so the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost along with the accompanying sign of speaking other languages was an event that initiated the new and ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. And then lastly, the last link in the chain, is that Peter remembers the words of Jesus and he understands the significance of it. And we see that in in Acts 11. So after Pentecost... A similar outpouring of the Spirit took place on two other occasions. First among the Samaritans in Acts 8 and later to the Gentiles in Acts 10. So Peter, who witnessed both of these occasions, returned to Jerusalem to give a report to the Jewish church about what had taken place. And these Jews were initially skeptical that non-Jews were claiming to have received the same outpouring of the Spirit as them. However, Peter had seen this with his own eyes so that he was able to give testimony to the genuineness of their experience. And he, when he remembered what Jesus had told them concerning the promise of the Father and the baptism of the Spirit, he understood the significance of what he had witnessed. So in... Acts eleven sixteen and 17, he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So Peter understood that the purpose of, of the signs that were accompanying the baptism of the Spirit was to show 
that the, the, the apostles, that the Samaritans and the Gentiles were receiving the same spirit that Jesus had promised to them and that they themselves had received at Pentecost. So those signs only took place in the presence of apostles so that there would be an authoritative apostolic witness to verify these things. And that that would prove to all the Jewish Christians that the church was for everyone. So this was a transitional time between Old Covenant Judaism and New Covenant Christianity. A key time in redemptive history that proved undeniably that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the New Covenant people of God were not limited to one particular nation, but were to include the whole world. So, how should we understand then this? So what, what do we take away from this? Of following the baptism of the Spirit. And how that's transitioning us from the Spirit's work in the Old Testament to now the Spirit's work at Pentecost and following. guys have thoughts? Well, it seems like this baptism was the initial work of God of incorporating all believers into one unified body of Christ in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, all who believed at the time of their conversion were brought by God in the Holy Spirit to join His body and be part of this one body that is called the believing church of Jesus Christ. And each believer following these events is automatically placed into the body of Christ and made to participate in the Holy Spirit by being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So, and it's by the Spirit's work that Jesus' prayer in John 17, 21 is being answered. So Jesus prayed to the Father that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us. And this all happens, this baptism of the Spirit, this uniting to Christ, this being united to one another. It all happens through the Spirit's work of regeneration and indwelling, which Connor is going to start to cover for us next week. Any questions on any of that? Clarification. No. Um, there is there is a, another section on your handouts. Um, get starting to get into more practically what happens in this work of regeneration, and then we'll get into indwelling. 
I think for the sake of time, we will end it there, and um, Connor can pick up, he can pick up on results of regeneration next week. That work for you, Connor? Okay. Any final thoughts before I close this in prayer? Frank. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. 3.11. Okay. Well, then, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened there with the transposing of that, but thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, so Matthew 3.11, not 1.33. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and think that I was just making up heresies from verses that don't exist. Could be, yeah, John one thirty three. Yeah, that combined with the same numbers of 311. Now you see why the scribes, when they were copying down scripture had so many of these kinds of errors was there another question back there okay all right yeah good good clarification anything else okay uh, lord once again we're we're so grateful for your word so grateful for your spirit um so thankful for uh, the way that uh, this plan of redemption has been carried out by all three persons of the Trinity, um, how you have planned this, how uh, the Son has accomplished our redemption, and how the Spirit applies that in our lives. We pray that that work would uh, just continue with us into our corporate gathering this morning, um, assisting us in our worship. I pray that um, it would continue with us throughout this week and uh, that we might uh, walk worthy of our calling this week um, to serve you and, and bring glory to your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.